Good evening. Governor Cuomo is accused of sexual harassment in a bombshell blog post by a candidate for Manhattan Borough President. Middle schools are set to open tomorrow as American mortality rates soar. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. And there's a new wrinkle in this election cycle in New York. Manhattan Borough President candidate Lindsay Boylan says she was subjected to a hostile work environment culminated with an unwanted kiss from Governor Cuomo in 2018. Boylan details instances of alleged harassment along with a timetable for when they occurred in a blog post published today. She also shows an email from a woman in Cuomo's office who seems to be encouraging the alleged behavior. In a statement, Cuomo's press secretary said Boylan's claims of inappropriate behavior are quite simply false. Boylan begins her essay by alleging that Cuomo, during a 2017 flight from western New York, suggested they play strip poker. Responding to the allegations, which were posted on the blocking site Medium, Democratic State Senator Alessandra Biaggi wrote on Twitter, I have no doubt that this is true. I've witnessed similar behavior, and it's unacceptable. And we'll be following that story, I'm sure, as it develops. The White House said today, meanwhile, that the United States expects to roll out three to four million doses of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine next week, pending authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. That's despite reports of manufacturing problems that have delayed rollout of the new vaccine. The FDA also said today the Johnson & Johnson one-dose vaccine appeared safe and effective in trials, paving the way for its approval for emergency use as soon as this week. The company has a contract to deliver 100 million doses to the United States by the end of June, a timeline the administration says it wants to accelerate. About 2 million of the 4 million doses will go to states and the rest to federal distribution programs. Meanwhile, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said daily U.S. cases in the past week declined to approximately 64,000. There are nearly 30 million COVID cases reported in the United States and more than 500,000 deaths since about this time last year. New York City has reported more than 700,000 of those cases and more than 29,000 deaths. As of yesterday, there were 6,189 positive tests for COVID in the state. Fatalities broken down by race and ethnicity show that black and Hispanic New Yorkers have been dying of COVID at significantly higher rates than each group's proportion of the population, especially in New York City. A report released last week by the National Center for Health Statistics, a division of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, showed the devastating impact of the disease, the first increase in mortality in the United States since the Second World War, when 400,000 American soldiers died in battle. The author of the report is Dr. Elizabeth Arias. She's director of the mortality branch of the Bureau of Vital Statistics. She says most of the decline was a result of what she calls excess deaths from COVID-19. And another contributing factor was an unprecedented increase in drug overdoses. Dr. Arias spoke with WBAI earlier today. Surprising 
We expected that there would be an effect and that life expectancy would decline due to the very high numbers of what we call excess deaths, which are deaths that were not expected. We are able to estimate what we expect in terms of numbers of deaths due to chronic diseases or external causes like accidents. The excess deaths were so large that we expected that it would have an effect on life expectancy. But the effect turned out to be even larger, I would say, particularly for minority populations like the African-American population and the Hispanic population. We're looking at statistics, we're looking at numbers. It doesn't really tell us causes. It just tells us there's a problem. The reason why there was such a difference in those estimates to what we got the year before, 2019, was this increase in numbers of deaths. Two-thirds of those excess or extra deaths that we saw in the first half of 2020 were due to the COVID pandemic. And about a third were due to other things. We know, for example, that deaths due to drug overdose increased. We also know that there were increases in other causes of death, like heart disease. We saw increases in those causes also. But the greatest increase was due to the COVID pandemic. Drugs you mentioned opiate overdoses. We had seen increases in deaths due to drugs in previous years. Then, though, saw a decline, but then they ticked back up. They went back up between 2019 and 2020. There was increases in heart disease and other things as well. It may be due to people have foregone their usual annual preventative care or if they have uh, chronic conditions and they've not been seeing uh, the doctor because they're afraid. What did we find as far as the racial disparity? Life expectancy declined the most for the African-American population by 2.7 years and for the Hispanic population by 1.9 years. And for the non-Hispanic white population, it declined by 0.8 years. So you saw that there was a very different experiences. So when you have such declines, so for example, in 2019, the white population had an advantage of 4.1 years of life expectancy higher than the black population. And that increased to six years in 2020. Back in 1900, the white population had a life expectancy that was over 14 years higher than the black population. And that disparity declined gradually and consistently throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century where that disparity declined all the way down to that 4.1 year and then with this event it went back up to six years the hispanic population had actually been doing better than the white population and they're losing that advantage the hispanic population has had an advantage in comparison to the white population of about, we started producing life expectancy estimates for the Hispanic population with 2006 data year. And at that time, the advantage was two years and that increased to three years in 2019. And then it went down to just 1.9 years. So, and that was again, a result of the Hispanic population having significantly more or higher excess mortality uh, in 2020 than the white population. That advantage has always been a paradox. Hispanic population generally has lower socioeconomic status 
and less access to health care than the majority population. So it was always like a question, how can it be? They could be something called selection. So people who emigrate tend to be more selected for better health and constitutional hardiness. There's a big proportion of the Hispanic population that is foreign-born, so they're immigrants. And we have seen that same phenomenon in other countries, like in Europe, for instance, immigrants having lower mortality than the native population. We haven't found the exact cause. What happened to America because of COVID from your research? We've lost a lot of the progress that we had made during the last several decades in life expectancy. Life expectancy has been increasing. This large decline, we're back where we were in terms of life expectancy in 2006. And that was Elizabeth Arias. And she is the director of the mortality branch of the Bureau of Vital Statistics at the Centers for Disease Control, a division, uh, as I said, a division of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She spoke with WBAI earlier today. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Representative Ilan Omar condemned President Joe Biden yesterday over the administration reopening of a temporary detention facility for migrant children. The Department of Health and Human Services announced Monday that it was reactivating a temporary influx care facility capable of holding up to 700 minors aged 13 to 17 in Carrizo Springs, Texas, prompting Ocasio-Cortez to tweet that using the facility was not okay, regardless of the political party controlling the government. Last week, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki defended the move in a heated exchange with a reporter who reminded her of earlier statements by Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris denouncing the Trump policy. This facility, putting people in this facility, was a human rights abuse committed by the United States government. And Joe Biden said, under Trump, there have been horrifying scenes of border uh, at the border of kids being kept in cages. Now, it's not under Trump, it's under Biden. This is not kids being kept in cages. This is, this is kids, this is a facility that was opened that's going to follow the same standards as other HHS facilities. It is not a replication, certainly not. The, that's that is never our intention of replicating the immigration policies of the past administration. But we are in a circumstance where we are not going to expel unaccompanied minors at the border. That would be inhumane. That is not what we are going to do here as an administration. We need to find places that are safe under COVID protocols for kids to be, where they can have access to education, health and mental services, consistent with their best interests. Our goal is for them to then uh, be transferred to families or sponsors. So this is our effort to ensure that kids are treated or not in close proximity and that we're abiding by the health and safety standards that uh, the government has been set out. And that's White House press spokesperson Jen Psaki. In other immigration news, the Biden administration has fully embraced the DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program set up by President Barack Obama 
in an end-around executive order. DACA emerged after a Senate filibuster prevented the passage of the 2010 DREAM Act, which would have offered kids with clean police records the opportunity to apply for residency and eventually earn their citizenship. The program grants deferred action for kids who came to the U.S. before turning 16, arrived prior to June 15, 2007, and demonstrated a commitment to the USA through continued education, work, or military service. DACA recipients aren't citizens, usually arriving in the United States with their parents escaping gang violence, repressive poverty, and economic stagnation in their nations of origin. One DACA recipient is Maria de Los Angeles, a New York artist who has spoken out on behalf of a path to citizenship for undocumented persons. Reform has to take place, and I think people who have currently under DACA or current undocumented status and been living here and contributing to taxes and everything for such a long time there has to be a path to citizenship. My only concern, it has to be something that actually happens. We did have similar offers before, but nothing in a long-lasting path to citizenship way. There's a certain amount of distrust. You have to see it to believe it. We can totally call it distrust. Why would we have a sense of trust when these conversations have been started over and over again, and as we wait for things to actually happen, we are just getting older. This kind of repeated trauma has consequences. It has health consequences and emotional consequences beyond the legal ones. What are people saying in the in the DACA community? The problem with time is that we're not just speaking about things being extended over in time, but we're speaking about our people's lives. We are actually holding, in a way, hostage so many people that don't have a status. So I think everyone's hopeful, and I think we're all like happy that we have transitioned to a new administration. But we have to remember that parts of this administration also have been part of promises in the past. Obama was often called the deporter-in-chief. They're still maintaining these camps at the border, which is different from the DACA situation, obviously. These are folks who are finding their way over the border however way they can and then are being detained and arrested and put in these camps that are run by private companies. And, of course, the whole idea of children in camps, which happened early on in the Trump administration and and was never really resolved, occurred. And now we have the Biden administration claiming they're not doing the same thing, but children are still being detained. What was your reaction upon hearing that? There are communities and people who are willing to help with the children. And I think, like, for example, myself, we came here and we had family here who accepted us, who we were delivered to. The longer these kids are away from their family, the more traumatic experience that it's becoming for them. And no matter how we cut it, if for-profit companies are making profit on holding people hostage, basically, then we are still doing it. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It's still imprisonment and it's still for-profit imprisonment of people, incarceration. What do you think of this argument of deterrence to deter people from coming to make it to not make it seem like they're welcoming people? For a long time, people just were refugees and they came and they went through the process. So this whole holding people and saying that refugees are there being posed to commit a crime like incarceration is not all right for this country to to have those views. Where's freedom? Where is the American value? And where is the American value in relationship to family? A lot of things that have happened in the Americas, the U.S. has had some relationship to because people are seeking refuge from things that might even have a connection that I, and I count myself in this because I'm now part of this country and in so many ways, we might have had 
an impact onto the way that their lives are going right now and the reason that they're here to to seek uh, to reach a better future and that same future is the future that my family wanted for us I still oppose this idea that we can't find a better way and also that this government regardless of which one's in power right now they're still doing those same things so it doesn't matter what political party they are in this is a larger question about American beliefs and and freedom Maria de Los Angeles is a New York artist and part of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. The Biden administration ended the use of for-profit prisons for incarcerated persons, but continues the use of the private companies to run immigration detention facilities. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In New York City, middle schools will reopen Thursday for in-classroom instruction, and Mayor Bill de Blasio says he hopes high schools are not far behind. I am very excited that tomorrow our New York City public schools, our middle schools, will be reopening. And once we reopen, we are going the distance, and we're looking forward to September when all our kids are going to be back. This is really an important moment, bringing back our middle school kids getting them in the classroom, giving them opportunity to learn from talented, committed, passionate educators, people who really care about what they're doing, school staff that cares for them, looks out for them, looks out for their academic needs, looks out for their emotional needs as well. This is why it's so important to have kids back. So middle school kids come back tomorrow, and that's going to be great. And it's a reminder of why it is right to have kids in school. This is a discussion happening all over the country. Let me be as clear as I could be. Kids need to be back in school as quickly as possible. And as Mayor de Blasio, vaccinations are part of the reason schools can open. About 30,000 teachers have gotten the shots out of 94,000 educators working for the city. And an issue that's been vexing the de Blasio administration and decades of prior city leaders is the city's stubbornly high proportion of homeless people. The city has been reluctantly housing homeless citizens in luxury hotels made vacant by the coronavirus travel restrictions. De Blasio addressed the issue at a recent news conference. We generally do not think hotels are part of the solution. To homelessness, what we want to do is get, of course, more and more people to permanent affordable housing. It's about, I think, 150,000 folks that we've been able to get permanent affordable housing for who had been homeless over the last seven years. We don't want to use hotels where we're paying by the night. We want purpose-built shelters. That's the plan I put forward three years ago and that we're acting on. So I think the last point, you know, would there be some effort to turn some hotels into residential housing? Uh, some combination of affordable housing, market rate housing, open to that, but only if that's done through the regular land use process at the local level. That's the best way to do that. Mayor de Blasio again. Meanwhile, across the country in the Silicon Valley bedroom community of Santa Cruz, California, a group of activists who provide free food for homeless people and others has been battling the city government and developers over its free vegan food kitchens in the city. The group calls itself Food Not Bombs, and its co-founder is Keith McHenry. Once we recover the food, we cook like in somebody's house or in a church or on the streets, and we make the vegan meals, and we usually try to get a high-visibility location in the center of town or uh, near like downtown post offices or a prominent edge of a prominent park or metro station, those kind of things. And then we will hand out the food to everybody that comes. Also, they hand out free clothing, 
gloves and, and masks because of the COVID. We also provide support for protests and relief efforts in the cases of, for example, Hurricane Katrina. We were the principal group organizing the food relief in, in other parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Right now, we're helping support the movement against the military coup in Myanmar. And we have five chapters in that country, and they've been posting whenever they're allowed to, whenever the internet is up, images of themselves organizing, feeding the protests, those kinds of things. So why aren't you being embraced? We've been having problems with city governments on and off for years. In San Francisco, the city government there, with the uh, explicit support of Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, made over a thousand arrests. 700 of which at least were for felony conspiracy to serve food in violation of a court order. And it appears the issue is that they do not like the visible presence of large numbers of unhoused people in their community being fed because they themselves should actually be addressing the crisis, but they choose not to. Where is Santa Cruz and what's happening there? Well, Santa Cruz, California is, is actually the bedroom community for Silicon Valley. So many, there are regular buses that come called Google buses that come from Google, Facebook, and eBay, and PayPal, and those companies. There is an attempt by large out-of-state and out-of-county developers to redevelop the entire city, building a whole series of large luxury condominiums to park money in our community because there's already many, many empty units in the luxury condos that have already been built. And the city is trying to drive the homeless from the community, the city government. At first, they were telling the unhoused people they would take their belongings if they didn't move to this park. 200 people set up camps in that park. And then they announced a holiday eviction on December 17th. We were unable to block that physically. We attempted to do it, but those people were evicted into the doorways of downtown. We did successfully block the second wave of evictions, the second phase, and we were able to get a temporary restraining order in federal court, and then we now have an injunction, which will be reviewed on March 9th. At the same time, the city just has announced they're trying to clear another camp on the main highway, and then last night they passed an ordinance essentially making it illegal to live outside in Santa Cruz. The real estate industry bought and paid for the city council got rid of the progressive city councilors in an egregious recall campaign. We have been sharing food every single day since March 14th, when we learned that all the food programs that were indoors would be shut down. What's going to happen next? This is uh, unclear. We're hoping that we organize enough community support to block the eviction from this parking lot. Could you face arrest? Are the food not bomb? Could and yeah, we are. Yeah, we definitely are facing arrest. They explicitly threatened us with arrest, and we're trying to build support to block the evictions. We did block the last eviction from this lot, and we're hoping we can block the this uh, current eviction. People should be emailing the city of Santa Cruz, city council at cityofsantacruz.com. 
Keith McHenry is co-founder of the free vegan food group, Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs has been feeding protesters throughout the United States and worldwide in places as disparate as Belarus and Myanmar. They were also involved in helping during the Katrina, uh, during the Katrina floods that happened when the Hurricane Katrina came to New Orleans. And they were also involved in helping feed people in New York after Superstorm Sandy struck. And the nominee for head of the CIA is William Burns. His nomination hearing was held today. He answered a question from Senator Dianne Feinstein about the CIA torture program. Do you agree that current law prohibits any interrogation techniques not allowed by the United States Army Field Manual on Interrogation? Um, Senator Feinstein, it's good to see you. Um, I believe that waterboarding does constitute uh, torture under the law. Um, as you well know, this the, the issue of the enhanced interrogation techniques has been a settled matter for more than a decade. Uh, they were prohibited by President Obama in 2009, and then under the leadership of Senator McCain, the Congress um, enshrined this in legislation to ensure that the only permissible interrogation methods were those allowed in the Army Field Manual. Um, I think it's fair to say we all learned some very hard lessons in the period after 9-11. It is very important, it's crucial to be mindful of those lessons and to move forward. And so it's in that spirit that I, I also share Director Haynes's view that um, we should not take actions against or prejudice the careers of officers who may have worked under in those programs at a time when they were operating under Department of Justice guidelines and at the direction of the president. So to answer your question specifically again, I, I am certainly committed to what the law uh, provides right now and to ensuring that those enhanced interrogation methods are never again used by CIA. They certainly will not be under my leadership if I'm confirmed. And that is the uh, William Burns, who's the nominee for head of the CIA. Several captured members of Al-Qaeda and others who were subject to torture at CIA-run black sites around the world are still being held at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And Interior Department Secretary nominee Deb Haaland, a Pueblo Indian, sat through a second day of questioning today. She spoke about her view that oil and gas drilling has no place on federal land. I don't disagree. I understand what you're saying. If something shuts down, then jobs can be lost. And I, I understand that. So thank you for sharing that well, with thank me. Thank you, Congressman. If you, if, now, if you're confirmed, will you commit on behalf of the administration to consult with the three affiliated tribes about what DAPL means for the education, healthcare, infrastructure, and other services provided to tribal members. Will you commit to that consultation with the three affiliated tribes? Uh, Senator Hoven, uh, tribal consultation is, is mandated in in this government, and uh, I would absolutely consult with tribes when issues are affecting them. And I also would just add on, Senator, that with respect to the executive order that the president signed, it does not affect tribal lands. It just affects public lands, the pause on the leases. Right, uh, Congresswoman, and that, and that is a good point and a, an important point because it does affect federal lands, which we have a significant amount in North Dakota. And in fact, last year, 
the Department of Interior dispersed $66.7 million in revenue to the state of North Dakota from production uh, on federal land. So it's a very important issue to us. So I understand your point about the reservation, but the moratorium does affect our federal lands. So my question in regard to federal lands and uh, are uh, first, would you expect imports of uh, foreign oil to go up or down if we stop developing oil and gas on federal lands? Senator, I would absolutely, if I'm confirmed, ask to be briefed on this issue and would be more than happy to continue a conversation with you on it. And Deb Haaland is the nominee for Interior Secretary. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, said Wednesday he will vote to confirm Deb Haaland as Interior Secretary, citing the New Mexico Congresswoman's bipartisan accomplishments and sincere willingness to work collaboratively on important issues. The announcement gives a boost to one of President Biden's cabinet nominees as they continue to face scrutiny at their confirmation hearings in the closely divided Senate. Votes in two committees on the imperiled nomination of Neera Tandon, Biden's pick that had the uh, Office of Management and Budget, uh, have been delayed, and the White House continues to maintain its support for Tandon. Well, there's one nominee to lead the Budget Department. Her name's Neera Tandon, and that's who we're continuing to fight for. Questions about Shalani Young? We are are focused on fighting for the person the President has nominated. 